All right. Hi, everybody. It's RCFB Talk 93. We've got ourselves a fun show. It's going to be myself, Bob Akhairi, and my co-hosts, J.D. Moore. We always like to mix it up at least once a week. We like to talk about something other than FBS football. And today we're going to be discussing sprint football, specifically with the commissioner of the Collegiate Sprint Football League, Dan Mara. So we're going to go ahead and get everyone up here. As we go ahead and get this fired up, I just wanted to give you all a quick introduction here. So sprint football is a full contact intercollegiate varsity sport that has the same rules as regular college football, except all the players have to be below a certain weight limit. And we'll get more into that with the commissioner. The Collegiate Sprint Football League began play in 1934. It's had some famous former players, former President Jimmy Carter, Robert Kraft, Donald Rumsfeld. They all played sprint football. The 2022 season actually marks the debut of an entirely new league within it, the Midwest Sprint Football League. Our guest, Dan Mara, is the commissioner of the Collegiate Sprint Football League. And he has, a, I mean, <laughs> he has such a wealth of collegiate experience as both a coach and administrator when I, we were preparing this. I kept telling the folks, like, you will not believe what this guy's done in his career. It is absolutely, I mean, this is his 17th year as commissioner of the Central Atlantic Collegiate Conference, which is a Division II NCAA conference. He served as a president of the Eastern Collegiate Athletic Conference. He was the basically the athletic director and led the athletic department at Post University for 11 years as a transition from NAIA to NCAA D2. Before he became administrator, he was an accomplished women's college basketball coach at the junior college level over at Mitchell College in New London, Connecticut. He coached 10 seasons there as head coach and compiled an incredible winning record of 289 wins to 16 losses. He won 10 of the National Junior College Athletic Association New England titles, reached two of their final fours and was ranked number one in the poll for five separate seasons. He's been inducted into several halls of fame, including the NJCAA Basketball Coaches Hall of Fame, as well as New England Basketball Hall of Fame, Connecticut Women's Basketball Hall of Fame, which if you know anything about women's basketball in Connecticut, that's actually extremely impressive, as well as the Mitchell College Athletic Hall of Fame. On top of all of that, he at one point even was a police officer in Old Lyme, Connecticut in the 1970s. But he's the first independent commissioner of the CSFL since its founding in 1934. And he wears both hats as commissioner of both the Division II Conference as well as the Sprint Football League. Dan, thanks for joining us. Yes, sir. I am here. Well, for those, you know, unfamiliar with the sport, in your own words, tell us about Sprint Football. Well, it's it's real football with a weight limit. I mean, it, the, the players are a little bit smaller. Um, it's probably a quicker game than what you'd see on a, a Saturday in the the BCS, but it's a, it, it's legitimate football and it's a great opportunity for student athletes who may not have been able to participate at another level to, to get that chance to keep playing on Saturdays, Friday nights or Saturdays, you know, for another four years. So what is the weight limit for sprint football right now? 178. And, and the way it's structured is players have to weigh in twice a week. Uh, they have to make the weight limit both times when they weigh in. And we also do a, uh, random virtual weigh-in of f from five players from every team uh, every week, so which we, uh, we record just so we certainly have it. So there's a, it's a fail-safe. Just be certain that everything's on the up and up. Our teams are very, 
our teams are very good at, at b- being sure they maintain the limits, but just to have it there just as a failsafe. I am curious about that specific number of 178, because my understanding is when sprint football started way back in the day, it used to be 150 pounds. That's obviously been adjusted since, but why the cap at 178? Yeah, it's, it's evolved to that. Um, it was 175 not that long ago. It's just, it's a number that the, that the league administrators feel comfortable with. Um, they don't want to have obviously a 140 pound player playing against a 220 pound player. Um, and it just seems I can't tell you that there's scientific evidence behind that. That's the limit that it should be. Um, but it, it, the league administrators felt that that was in keeping with the spirit of the sport, uh, that it's for the smaller athlete and one seven, 178 seemed to work for them. So how did it develop historically? What led to, I mean, and I know obviously the 1930s, I'm not, may not be as, as familiar with what they were thinking, but <laughs> what led to its development? Yeah, I actually was not around for the the initial season. Um, yeah, it's a. I, it was just it's an opportunity. I think at um, it was predominantly at, at larger universities uh, when it started. You had a, a number of the Ivy Leagues. You had the University of Michigan had a team, um, and it was it was for the smaller student athletes to have a chance to compete. And at the academies, uh, while it also provides that opportunity, it it's also a great leadership opportunity. As you know, they're developing our, the future leaders of our military, and it's just a great opportunity for them to develop um, the guys who will be leading our, our troops in battle. So when you look at these different makeups of the programs that do sponsor sprint football, what's the general makeup? Are we looking more for, you know, in a student body that'd be closer to like a division two? Are you still looking at an academy size? What's that general makeup of a school that does sponsor sprint football? Well, you know, the, the CSFL is, has very different institutions. You've got, you have the two service academies, Army and Navy. You've got the two Ivy League schools, Penn and Cornell, and then you have the Division II schools. Uh, so they're, they're drastically different. One of the Division II schools, Mansfield, is a state school. The other four are private schools. Um, one, one of the Division II schools also has a varsity football program, NCAA football program that it competes with. So, uh, the, the makeup of the of the institutions is across the board, and they all have their own reasons why uh, they found sprint football to be suitable for them. What drew you to sprint football? I mean, because you're now their commissioner. What what attracted you to it? Uh, well, three of our schools at the time, um, Caldwell, Post, and Chestnut Hill, were members of the conference. And a gentleman who was an administrator in our league uh, was named commissioner. Dennis Gregory of Caldwell University, and not long into his term, uh, Dennis suddenly passed away. And uh, we had had some discussions with Dennis uh, as he was taking over that perhaps an independent group to run it might be might be better for the conference as opposed to having uh, you know, an administrator from a school uh, with just to have that non-partial view of, of the conference. And so uh, after Dennis's passing, the uh, administrators and coaches got together and appointed an interim commissioner, Ter- Terry Cullen of Cornell, who's been in the league forever and is a, a legend, um, did it for a while. And then we approached the league ourselves, uh, myself and Doug DeBias, who's the associate commissioner of this and the um, CACC. We approached the league and uh, we actually had, we approached each school individually. We had, we had calls with each 
administrator and coach uh, discussing what we thought we could bring to the table. Uh, then they had their own uh, private meeting and unanimously voted us in as the, as the new conference office. For these schools that go ahead and choose to be a part of sprint football, what's the opportunity for expansion within the sport? Obviously, you got a lot of teams like Caldwell based up in New Jersey. The service academies were drawn, that eastern seaboard in Annapolis and in West Point. Does geography have to play a major factor into that? Or are there well, others considering factors for sprint football as well? Well, as you know, geography in college athletics has become less and less of a, a concern. Uh, but in the, I would say in the CSFL, it, it still is somewhat of a concern. Uh, Alderson Broadus is a little bit far outside the footprint in West Virginia. Uh, but yeah, it's something that we look at. I think we have a great opportunity to grow. Uh, it's really, a, it's a, it's an interesting proposition for division two institutions. Um, it's non-scholarship. There's a, a cap on practices in terms of when you can start practice. You can't bring your teams back early. You have to wait for classes to start. Um, there's a limit on the number of assistant coaches. Uh, so for, for Division two schools that would like to have a football program but aren't interested in 35 scholarships and um, all kinds of coaches and bringing your team back early in the summer, it's a, it's a viable alternative. And so I think where our growth will probably be will be with uh, Division two schools within our footprint. What is the institutional commitment that is needed to field a sprint football team? Are you looking at a certain number of scholarships, a certain amount of equipment? What's all school-sponsored, and what's their responsibility on that? It, it's non-scholarship football. Schools, schools are not allowed to give athletic scholarships. They can certainly they can package a student for financial aid as they would any other student, uh, but they cannot have an athletic nexus to any of the aid that the student-athlete receives. Um, in terms of the actual budget, that's up to the institutions. Uh, obviously, health and safety is a primary concern, so I'd say all of our schools are very well equipped as you would see on any NCAA football program in terms of the, uh, the, the helmets, the practice equipment, et cetera, is all uh, pretty much state-of-the-art, as you would see at any Division One or Division Two program. That really kind of goes to a question I had. I know a pair of programs, at least recently, from Sprint Football decided to actually turn their programs into Division Two football programs with Post and Franklin Pierce. Uh -huh. So... What do you think led to that transition? Was it the fact that sprint football was so, I mean, as you said, it is like it is football. It is college football uh -huh. at its very heart. Was that just something where they decided sprint football was sort of a test run and then they decided to expand it? Because I know that's historically not necessarily been the case. You know, schools like Penn have been having separate football teams since 1934 and sure. the service academies have for decades on, uh, on themselves. But what do you think led to those two to decide to kind of switch from sprint football to Division Two? I think there was, a, there was a change in university administrations at both schools. Uh, I think both schools started the program with the intent of staying as uh, sprint football programs. Uh, each school brought in a new president, new athletic director, a uh, different set of eyes program, and they made, the, they made the adjustment to go to NCAA football. Um, I think one thing that schools that are looking at it as an enrollment driver um, may make them look to uh, – NCAA football would be that we have a roster cap of 65 and obviously in the NCAA you can have as many as you want uh, and I think that might have that might have played a role in it as well but I think it was basically just a change in institutional philosophy because of uh, new staff. Oh that's fascinating I was actually wondering about the roster numbers and that mm -hmm. that really does kind of lend into that. 
So you've talked about the ideas, because I mean, as a commissioner, I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts on a strategy that you've thought for expanding the sport. Because I agree, I mean, I completely am with you. The more the more anyone learns about sprint football, I think as as just a lay person coming into it, you're just you become almost surprised you haven't seen more teams because it's uh-huh. so attractive. Is it the size? I mean, what what would be your thoughts on how the sport could expand? Yeah, I think. I think you're right. I think the word has to get out there, and that's uh, Doug Tobias is doing a great job uh, marketing the CSFL. Obviously, we're, we're very new in our administration, but I think we've made some great strides in that way. But you're right. When you talk to administrators at universities, even those who have NCAA football programs, and talk to them about uh, the CSFL, they go, geez, we could do that too, like like Alderson Broaders does, or or the, the four Division One schools in the conference. You have a a varsity football team and you have your sprint football team. So I think there's, there's definitely room for growth. Uh, and we're, we are out there actively talking to potential schools. Uh, it's great that the Midwest has started up. Uh, I think it'll spread the word nationally and, and probably help the recruiting bases for our schools. Uh, but we are, we're hopeful for growth in the not too distant future. When it comes to getting the word out, I'm sure television access has to be a huge thing for any football conference in order for it to grow and expand with a fan base. What does current broadcasting rights look like for Sprint football right now? Yeah, we, we don't have any of the broadcasting rights for our schools. Um, you know, the Ivies are tied into ESPN+. Plus. Uh, the service academies have their own deals, and we, so we are – as a, as a single sport standalone conference, we don't really have too much to do with what the schools are doing in terms of um, their broadcasting. So, you know, you, you touched on the Midwest Sprint Football League and how did the CSFL work at all with them to help them get started? Or what was what is that relationship like? Yeah, we, we, we've talked on more than one occasion with the, the people starting up the Midwest League and um, the the short story is Nancy Blotner, Dr. Blotner, who was president at Caldwell University, um, left a few years ago to go to Fontbon in St. Louis, um, arrived on campus, saw a need to increase male enrollment, and uh, thought that sprint football would be a good fit for their conference or for their campus. And um, she, she was a Johnny Appleseed of sprint football in the, the Midwest. She, she went out and contacted schools, and uh, after one year, she was – talked five other schools and the starting it and and that's how the program came about so we're very closely linked we dr blotner is a a good friend of the sprint football league um and maria buckle who's acting as the uh commissioner of the midwest has been very active in reaching out contacting us speaking with us um she's also the athletic director of Fontbon. but it's it's been a very strong relationship and we would we would hope that sometime in the future we'd be able to have some type of competition uh, by competition, do you mean like sort of setting up a postseason game between the, the two leagues? That's a possibility. Uh, we did pass legislation this year allowing CSFL teams to uh, compete uh, one game against a, a Midwest Football League team if they so chose. It was not a requirement. It was permissive. Uh, but we do, teams are allowed to do that. And I wouldn't be surprised if down the road that started to happen and then if scheduling would allow, uh, perhaps have a bowl game at the end of the season, uh, but we don't we don't have that solidified at this point. But it is something that has there's been discussion. I know the Midwest League has a great interest in it. Yeah, I think one of the benefits of being a smaller league is that 
nimbleness. It's not like deciding to add something at the last second at mm -hmm. you know the NCA level. This is this is something where the two sides can come to a, a decision fairly quickly. So as the Midwest Football League was developing, I mean, were there lessons you think they could they learned from? Because I mean, I, I love the she's Johnny Appleseed of of sprint football. I thought that was actually great. That was that was a fa I love that comparison. But were there lessons you think she was able to draw on from how the CSFL runs itself and growing it within its own territory? Definitely, yes. I uh, Dr. Blotner was a a student of the sprint football league when she was when she was at Caldwell. She made the decision to bring uh, the sport on campus. Uh, she was very involved with the entire process. She understood exactly how it worked from picking out the helmets and the pads to the, what equipment they would have to what field they would use. And uh, she took all that to, to the Midwest, and she, she, she's very persuasive. And she was, she was able to convince the, the uh, other conference or the other schools out there to start it up. And, yeah, I think, there's a, I think it's based pretty squarely on the Sprint Football League. So as far as just kind of turning it back to the, the CSFL, is there an effort to try and restart some of the programs that used to have sprint football? I know Rutgers did and some of the other Ivies did as well. Yeah. Yeah, we, we've not had any conversation with any of the, uh, the D1s, the former members, about, about starting up. That, that, that has, has not started. We'd be happy to have conversations with them, uh, but there has not been an interest. At that level, there may be a Title IX concern about having another group, um, you know, have another 65 male athletes participating. Uh, but that's uh, we have not had any discussions with them. Now, as you look to kind of how does how does expansion typically work for the CSFL? Because obviously, I know sometimes there's some turnover in teams from season to season. How does that that typically begin when a school wants to start a program? Do they approach your conference or is there kind of sort of initial discussions between maybe yourselves and, and one or two people at the school? How does it start for these programs when they decide to add a sprint football team? Well, sometimes people have heard of it through uh, presentations we may have given or discussions we may have had at uh, larger venues. Uh, but traditionally an athletic director will reach out to myself or to Doug DeBias and we'll start the conversation there and then we'll, uh, you know, progress to the president of the institution, and then we'll bring information to our our members uh, to discuss the viability of adding that that particular school. So, do you? I mean, the presentations thing is interesting. So, how often do you find yourself presenting about sprint football? What kinds of audiences? Conferences, typically, or yeah, yeah. You know, we 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 speak to athletic directors. We speak to a pre, uh, group of presidents. It doesn't. We'll, we'll speak to anybody, to be honest with you, uh, just to get to get the word out there. Uh, and frequently, um, presidents or athletic directors from our member schools will talk to uh, schools that may not have an NCAA football program about the p possibility of joining the CSFL. Just wanted to take a, a quick second to do a station ID. This is RCFB Talk 93. We're talking sprint football with CSFL Commissioner Dan Mara. My next question, however, was, you know, I know that sometimes leagues can have a bit of a divide between the haves and have-nots. And at least so far this season, you're looking at some of the scores. Some of the teams are, are definitely stronger than the others. Is there a difficulty in administering a league where there, there is that kind of divide? Well, in terms of the actual uh, administering of the league, it, no. Um, I mean, but it, obviously there are 
it's it's unfortunate sometimes if a school loses by a, a, a large amount. But you know, as the league office, we're, we're Switzerland, so we 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 do not take a position uh, one way or the other with any any uh, topic that uh, about competition, et cetera, like that. We uh, we would we'd love to you know get to the end of the year and everybody's five hundred, but that's just that's just not realistic. Schools right. have, schools have different missions. They have uh, they draw different pools of student athletes. Uh, and they have different they have different reasons why they have sprint football. What does the league do to sort of help at least new teams that are coming online? What are the things they try to do to sort of help them, you know, settle in and become a hopefully a lasting member of a conference? Well, we, we start at, at ground zero with uh, with schools that are interested in terms of uh, we supply them with a potential startup cost, potential annual budgets, um, any, everything from. Uh, when you should hire a coach to uh, what, what equipment you should be looking at. Uh, that's a, so we, we started at the very basics with them. Uh, and then we, we walked them through the, the entire process um, all the way from uh, application to visit to, um, to acceptance and then getting them on the schedules. Uh, so we, we're, we're, we're very involved from, from soup to nuts from, from ground zero. Kind of jumping down to the actual, just the, the play level, how does sprint football in terms of strategy, in terms of what people see on the field, how does it differ from typical, you know, uh, NCAA football that most people are used to? What, how would you describe it? Do we see sort of, uh, does the game have a different character to it? I, I mean, I don't believe so, no. Uh, because as you know, there's so many different levels of NCAA football. It's hard. I mean, I, I wouldn't compare it to Alabama Clemson. Uh, but it's, you know, it, it's good athletes who are just just a little bit smaller. Um, you know, you may have a, you know, 160 pound offensive lineman, which uh, adds a whole different dimension in terms of how people can get out and pull on a sweep. Um, you know, it's 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 a little bit different, but it's I think it's a high quality product. What are the rule sets that you typically have in sprint football and where are they traditionally derived from? I'm sure it's very similar to division one football in the same way that you would have your yard markers, your general rules, your penalties. But I'm curious to know, especially with the weight differences, do you have any kind of special accommodations in terms of rules or play changes that you would typically see at a division one level? No, it's, it's straight NCAA football. We use uh, the NCAA football manual or, our officials are signed uh, by the same individuals who assigned the Patriot League or any other uh, any of the other Eastern Division One and Two and Three football leagues. Uh, we have the crew that did our championship game uh, last year at Mansfield is is doing Big Ten games, so um, it's it's regular football. I have to say it had one of the most remarkable score lines I've ever seen last season. That Army Caldwell game yeah. was incredible. I mean, for those who are unaware, that game went into five. <laughs> Good luck finding any other game that ended in five OT with a score of four to two. Now, mm -hmm. I, it's so funny. I think it, I think even anybody who's just sort of a regular college football fan would have gone like, "How does that work? How did how are there three safeties?" But obviously, there wasn't. I mean, those of us who are, you know, on the, the crazier side of college football passion know that once you pass with the new OT rules, you have to keep going for two. Uh -huh. And <laughs> that's how you end up with a four to two five OT game. That, I remember when that scoreline came out, uh -huh. it was shared on the, the forum side of Reddit's RCFB. 
And it just, it turned to heads. Because, I mean, you can't, that's, that's incredible. Which, which I think, of course, speaks to the defenses involved, if anything. Because those are two well, very strong programs. I think it speaks to the weather, too. It was, it was, <laughs> it, it, it was played in a monsoon. Uh, so that, I think that, that played a great role as, as well as good defense. But the, the, the weather kept the, kept the score down. It was a significant wind and rain that day. Uh, that made it a very difficult situation for the offenses. Dan, have there been games that you've found particularly memorable that you've observed since becoming commissioner? Well, last year's championship game was was a great game. You know, it was it was Army versus Navy with all the the pageantry that that brings, the tradition, uh, a, a very close game. Army with the lead, and then fourth quarter, uh, Navy stepped up and came back and won the championship. But I so I would put that as as a highlight of our our very short time uh, being involved. But, uh, you know, it's hard to beat Army-Navy at, at any level. No kidding. And those two programs have seemed to consistently be some of the winningest programs in sprint football history. I mean, looking back even to the start of the sport itself, I mean, Navy's won 38 championships, Army's won 36. And even looking back at recent history, you got to look at like Penn 2016 as yeah. an example where Army and Navy weren't the ones winning it all. What's caused their continual success as a sprint football dynasty? Well, they, they obviously get great student athletes. Uh, I think conditioning is second to none. You know, they've, they're, they're, they're doing physical training around the clock. They're, and they're, they're very well coached. They're, they're very disciplined. Um, you know, Mark West has been at Army for quite a while as a former student athlete there and ha- has done a great job. Um, Davy has ha- has a little more turnover in coaches because it's a it's generally a an, a serving officer, uh, but you know they're they're very strong they're very strong teams and and you can't beat the tradition. Winning makes winning. Oh, absolutely. I mean, success always begets success, and that's why you see at any level of football, if you find somebody who can consistently find success, success will ultimately end up coming to them. And I mean, you mentioned earlier about the fact that, you know, you're training up the next generation of the military with strong leadership, strong training, strong physical fitness. It makes clear sense of why they're definitely succeeding on the field. But you also mentioned the traditions. Now, everybody knows the pageantry of a big-time Army-Navy game if they're playing it in Philadelphia or out on the final week of the college football regular season, what kind of pageantry do we see for an Army-Navy game at the sprint football level? Are we seeing a exchange of prisoners? Are we seeing goats being stolen? What's kind of the uh, situation uh, that we've got when we've got this type of rivalry game going? No, you're, you're just seeing uh, two teams with great tradition and a lot of pride going at it. And, um, you know, it's a very moving national anthem. Uh, it's just it's just a really nice event when they get together. It's first class all the way. Now, are these games typically played on campus uh, when it's between the two of them? I imagine it uh-huh. would be, but do you have yep. opportunities of, you know, we can put it at a neutral site in a larger arena? Is that something that sprint football has explored in the past, or is that something we, they would be interested in? We have had discussions with some uh, some venues. Uh, nothing that Nothing that has worked out. Uh, obviously, Army Navy is a draw, uh, so there's been discussions. Uh, some venues express specific interest in in those teams. Um, we have had we have had discussions. Uh, nothing has come of it as yet. Uh, COVID kind of derailed some plans, but uh, it's something that that we've looked at. Yes. 
when you look at business opportunities like that, what goes into that business development process for sprint football? Because obviously you've got a lot of moving parts for any type of football game, but especially in trying to get everything together for a neutral side or something else like that. How important is the reliance on partnerships of schools and communities when you try to put together these kind of pageantry events? Yeah, if we have not been able to put it together yet, but I can tell you that uh, the community where the, the game is held is, is vital, whether it's a visitor's bureau, a business bureau, or just one key sponsor. That's that's a huge part of it, and that's, that's what we've been uh, looking for, and those are the individuals we've been speaking with as we've tried to put something together. You know, I just wanted to do a quick check-in. This is RCFB Talk 93. We're talking sprint football with... CSFL Commissioner Dan Mara. You know, Dan, I just wanted to take a second. I know your time is valuable. We've been going for about 30 minutes. Do you have time for a little bit more? Sure. Yep. You know, one of the questions I do have heading into this is we're going into another week of college football in every conference as well as the Sprint Football League. What are some of the games that you find interesting heading into this weekend? Uh, that's, that's a good question. I mean, uh, well, Stack has a home game coming up. Uh, tomorrow tomorrow evening uh that i think would be of, of interest obviously anytime army and navy play that's a uh, not that they're playing each other but anytime they play that that's that's very important in our league but uh army is is at st thomas aquinas tomorrow night uh penn and cornell in an ivy league matchup which is obviously a big rivalry for them is also tomorrow um so i, I would say those Tomorrow night should be a, a big night in the CSFL. And uh, we've got Chestnut Hill Caldwell and Mansfield Autos and Broadus on Saturday. So uh, we've got some good football in store. For those out there who want to learn more, at least watch more, I should say, sprint football, what are the best ways for them to check it out? They can go to our website, uh, and there's links to the, the games. They can get it there. Or they can go to the individual school websites and look, look there. Um, but th there are links. Uh, they can also, uh, you know, the Ivies, for the most part, their games are on ESPN+. Plus. They, they can look there. Um, just, it's, there's numerous ways to, to get to the, the webcast. And one of the questions I, well, where can we find, you know, more information on this? What are the best sites to go to? What Twitter accounts should we look out to? I think printfootball.com is our primary website. I would think that people should go there it's a, it's a brand new website uh recently redesigned in terms of working with um circle w sports and it, it, it's a very nice clean website and doug tobias is our our webmaster and does has done a great job with it so that would be a i, I would recommend going there and then the uh, at sprint at sprint fb on twitter and I know you guys have some good media coverage, at least from CSFL Hub. I've read a few articles on there, I admit, before I came into this. They have a couple of writers there that seem to be really dedicated to all of this. In fact, I think they're in the audience. I see at CSFL Hub. Hey, shout out to you guys. You're doing the good work there in, in keeping attention on this particular sport. Well, Dan, we really appreciate you taking the time to come and, and speak with us today. This was a really interesting conversation. I, I hope that we're helping spread the the news about this sport because it's it's utterly fascinating. I mean, as you said, it is it's just NCAA football with guys that are a little bit smaller, but not in a way that makes it in any way less interesting. It's just the it's fascinating to watch a kind of speed and agility approach mm -hmm. in college football. I almost thought of it as like rugby sevens versus you know full on rugby. 
mm-hmm. in the sense that you've got people that are there's a lot more opportunities for talent in being implemented in a different way. I, I agree. Yeah, it's, it's it's fast paced. It's a lot of fun to watch. Uh, and at the end of the day, it's just a great opportunity for our student athletes to continue their playing careers. And it adds a, a whole dimension to a lot of our campuses to have that football program. You know, it's the great American tailgate. You can bring that to some of the smaller schools that may not be able to have it in it at another uh, size. Absolutely. Well, Dan, thank you so much. You know, actually, one more question, Dan. This is not this isn't CSFL related. This is actually something because I found your background utterly fascinating. I love <laughs> the time you spent at Post. So you were at Post when it was Takeo Post, wasn't it? Correct. For a while there. Oh, How yeah. was that transition like? Because I mean, it was a fascinating situation that I don't think most people, you know, the kids nowadays <laughs> may not be familiar with. Uh-huh. But and then you were there to transition the program from the NAIA to Division Two as well. Correct. That's a lot of that's a lot of hats to wear <laughs> in terms of of moving a department. How were those transitions like? Oh, they were great. I, I, it was it was a lot of fun. You know, we we made the decision. Um, Post had not been four years for that long. Post was a a, a junior college until the late eighties, uh, and then in ninety eight uh, we made the decision to go from the NAIA uh, till to Division two NCAA Division two, and uh, fortunately the other members of the CACC uh, thought it was a good idea as well. So we, we transitioned together and, and that was great. Um, obviously the, the name change uh, was, was a little hectic in terms of uniforms and getting all the, getting everything squared away that changing your website, changing your email. Uh, but it was, it was all great. And I think it worked out a lot better. I think post university is a lot easier to market than take your post university. We have to explain to everybody what, what's going on. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I think I think it was a great move on the on the part of the university and uh, it's worked well. And subsequently, they've you know, they've changed colors as well. We were uh, Hunter and black and white and they're now uh, purple and orange. Have you enjoyed being an administrator more than being a coach? Because you've done both for quite some time each. But how do you feel about that? What do you, have you enjoyed being an administrator more than the coaching days? No, no, I I love coaching. Coach, coaching is coaching is the best the best fun I've ever had. You know, I, th- I think it's, uh, you can really make a, have a significant impact on the student athletes that you work with day to day. You know, as, as my career has progressed, I've gone from, you know, coaching where you have that smaller group, whether it's 15 to 20, uh, who you have a significant impact on, then you become an AD and there's a larger group that you have a, a decent impact on. Then you become a commissioner and there's an enormous group and you really have very little impact on them. And just, you know, you're sort of setting the tone for the conference, but in terms of really impacting their lives, it's, that's coming more from at the, uh, at the school level. Uh, so that's been, that's been a change. Uh, but I, I really, I really enjoy coaching. Uh, but at a point, you know, you, you have to determine, do you want to have your livelihood determined by 18 year olds? And uh, I made the decision. It might be a good, good time to become an, become an administrator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah indeed I, I you can sometimes see that with some coaches that they're about to retire you just sort of look in their eyes during a presser as their players are talking and you can just sense i still remember i wasn't shocked for example when pete carroll decided to go back to the nfl because there was this one press conference where uh, one of his qbs was saying like he was going to leave early and you could just look in the conference on the side and you could see his eyes just like why am i still dealing with this you know <laughs> the next yeah. you know he's in the seahawks 
So, yeah, I hear yeah. you there. Well, so. thanks thanks for indulging that. I really appreciate it. Sure. We appreciate having you as our guest. Thank you so much. I appreciate much. it. Thank, thank you for inviting us. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, for those of you out there, that's all we have for today. Thank you all for listening. This was RCFB Talk 93. We were talking sprint football with the commissioner of the Collegiate Sprint Football League, Dan Mara. My name is Bob Akhairi. I was joined by my co-host, J.D. Moore. We hope you all have a great night. It's going to be some college football this weekend, both sprint football and every other division out there. So find what you like, watch it, support it. And if you can, go to a game. That's even better. Now, I'm going to hang up and listen.